All right, we'll be in John chapter 1, finishing really this three-part Christmas series in John. I'm going to read John 1, 1 through 18 in just a moment. If I can frame out for you kind of the thought of John as he lays out for us what he's doing. In John 1, 1 through 8, he's, he's helping us understand who the Word is. Remember, that's his, his code word for Jesus Christ. And he's using this code word so that he can theologically backfill all this theology without leaning towards some of the errors that might fill their minds if, if he just jumped into the topic, letting their baggage define who this person is. So he defines the word as this um, eternal person who's distinct from God the Father, but in sweet fellowship with the Father, through whom the world was made, and he is the light and the life of all men. That's who Jesus Christ is. Then we move to chapter 9 through 13, and he speaks to the concern that this one who was born, in verse 14, he explains in 9 through 13, is the one through whom people believe and become children of God, or through rejection remain in darkness. Remember, he is the light coming into the world, and men did not like the light. But to those who believed him, he gave the right to become the children of God. And then verses 14 through 18, which we'll look at in just a moment, he's explaining now the benefits that accrue to those who see Christ. Or maybe you could, you could turn it a little bit differently and say, speaking to how Christ shows us the very glory of God. If you're thinking about what this passage does for us in some ways, it's like going to the ocean or the Grand Canyon. You don't go to those places to feel good about yourself. You go to those places and you feel small. And you feel awed by the beauty and the grandeur and the bigness. You tiptoe up to the edge of the Grand Canyon and you feel your heart and your pulse and a little bit of fear thrum through you as you look at the massive chasm before you and you feel insignificant. Or you look at the ocean and you consider what it would take for you to swim as far as your eye can see, knowing you couldn't do it. Seeing the vastness and the bigness and the power of it, you're amazed. Even the simple things like a rainbow grab our awe because of the startling beauty and the bigness and the placement of it in the sky. When we consider the distances between stars and the vastness of the universe, we feel our place as small. Those are good moments for our soul. This text is intended to do that, that we might look to Jesus Christ and be amazed. We might stand back with a little bit of awe, a little bit of fear, and a lot of joy. As you look in verses uh, 14 through 18, and he holds forth Christ, that's where we're going to focus this morning again is this third part. But let me read verses 1 through 18 as, a, as an entirety, so that way you get a feel for it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. 
He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed on his name. He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. I think this text before us pulls from the previous sections and reminds us of two central truths. And the first leads to the second, and it's this. God's gift of Jesus Christ is God's presence with us. And we looked at this a little bit last night with just the name Emmanuel. And you think about one of the most tragic elements in human life is to be alone. It's to be without society, without fellowship, without family, without friends. Even some of you probably felt a little bit of the tension this morning that to be here might not be to be present with family. And you felt the terror like, ah, should we do this or should we do that? I'm glad you're here. I hope you're glad you're here. And even in that, some of you wouldn't want to be anywhere else because of the uh, sweet fellowship that you share with one another and with your family here among us. To be alone is miserable. You might just remember a few years ago the social scar of loneliness that COVID brought to us. Trapped in your home day after day, unable to just see the regular, normal people of society. Maybe you could feel the social anxiety, the psychoses of loneliness developing within your own heart. Do you remember the eagerness with which you first regathered with people? Or maybe you're one of those few who slyly never stopped being alone because you know how miserable it is to be alone. I know many of our um, families have people in law enforcement. I can only imagine what what it's like to be at night alone, knowing your spouse is out on the streets, keeping the rest of us safe at peril to their own life. Being alone is miserable. I think there is meant to be a reflection in that longing to be in society of what we miss when we have no fellowship with God. And the loneliness you might feel when your house is empty and you're home alone and your family is not present and you have no one to talk to and something exciting or horrible happens and you have no one to share it with. And so you quickly grab your phone, probably, I think that loneliness is meant to be an echo, a shallow, weak echo of what it means to be without God. When we look in this text, we see in verse 1, the word was with God. We come down at the very end of the text, and he uses a different tense. This, this word 
that has come. He names his Jesus Christ in verse 17. In verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God. That's speaking of Jesus Christ. He is God. Where is he? He's at the Father's side. That's the same word for bosom, like Abraham's bosom, or Jesus on that night he was betrayed when, when there's this disciple who's laying in his bosom. I'm talking about John. It's because of this close, intimate fellowship. This sweet unity that the Father has with the Son. That they're together in good fellowship. That this is, this is part of what brings our divine Savior joy is being in fellowship with his Father. And, and again, we have, we have little samplings of loneliness, and it's miserable. And we have little samplings of good unity. When everything is right, and we are enjoying our friends, we're enjoying our family, and we remember those moments with sweet nostalgia, that is every moment of the Son's existence with his Father. And in verse 14, he comes to share it with us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now that word dwelt is, is a borrowed idea from the Old Testament. There's no easy way to translate the Bible sometimes because words just don't transfer across linguistics and cultures easily. If I said something like this, that the, the word became flesh and tented among us, you'd be like, he what it? If I said he tabernacled, so you're like, oh, I get that. And half of you be like, what is a tabernacle? Okay, so tabernacle or tent is, is, I think, a very clear reference from the rest of the flow of this text. Going back to the Old Testament, when Israel was coming out of Egypt, they're at Mount Sinai. God gives them a, a pattern to build a mobile temple. Some of you might remember a few years ago, our church was a mobile church. On Sunday mornings, we had a 20-foot trailer that we'd pull up to Stockdale High School. We would unload all of our stuff. We'd set it up on Sunday morning. We'd worship together. Then we'd take it all down and put it back in the trailer and drive, put it back in storage every week. Well, Israel is not quite so efficient because they have, like, horses and their own muscles that they have to do it all with. They don't have vehicles and trailers. But they had a mobile worship center, the tabernacle. Later, David buys supplies and Solomon builds a temple, a structure that is established on Mount Zion, the, the, the hill of Jerusalem. That's also the place where Isaac was sacrificed, for those of you who are trying to put together these threads of biblical theology. So, so you, you come to this, this picture here, and he's referring to the dwelling place of God that lasted from the time of Moses all the way up through Solomon as the sacred center where God dwelled. God's glory was manifested there. Now, here's something about God's glory. God's glory is invisible. Because now, I should say it was invisible, now he has created a manifestation of his glory in visible light so that we can see the unseeable God in some sense. That is, God before and in eternity past did not manifest his glory in displays of light because there was no light. That's actually a creation for our benefit. And in time, God shows us who he is. So you go to the Old Testament, and during the day, God is present, and he shows his presence with a... You with me on this one? Cloud, like a pillar of smoke. And at night, he's... Okay, we got some, we got like 50% on that quiz, but we got something. 
Okay, so there's this pillar. But God's showing Israel's presence. That's a pure gift. Right? Like, God's omnipresent. It's not as though all of a sudden God was there. He's always there. But he wanted Israel to know in a special way and in a particular way that he was meeting with his people there. And so that cloud, as Israel stopped and they set up this tent, this tabernacle, that cloud or that pillar of fire would descend on the temple and dwell there. And then as Israel spiritually just decayed and spiraled into spiritual bankruptcy, the Bible has these sad moments in these Old Testament prophets where the Bible talks about the glory, the Shekinah glory, the visible display of God's presence departing. In fact, you might be familiar with the name Ichabod from literature. It's actually a name in the Old Testament meaning the glory is gone. One of the saddest names you could name your kid. The glory is gone. That's when the Ark of the Covenant got stolen in battle. And so I want you to look again in verse 14 and think about what God is telling us. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. <laughs> like, that's the picture is Jesus Christ is God. And when we look at him, we're not seeing a, a, a tent made with human hands where God dwells. We are seeing God of gods who has come in flesh. And when we see him, we see the glory of God. And he's with us. God's temple is not in heaven. His temple came to us in Jesus Christ. We've seen his glory. Again, verse 18, very similar. No one has seen God, the only God. That's the word. That's Jesus Christ. Who is at the Father's side has made him known. We see God when we see Jesus. As we go through John, you'll have John make claims like, he is life. And so you and I can experience resurrection and life because of Jesus Christ, who has come and brought God to us. He claims that he is bread, and so we all partake of that bread when we believe in Jesus Christ, and we are sustained in spiritual life and empowered for living in godliness. He is the word. And so when he speaks, it is the word of God that we hear. He is truth, and everything that comes from his mouth is true and believable. Every promise will be fulfilled. Every claim will be satisfied. Everything that Jesus says and does is to be believed because it is true, because he is the truth. He is light, and in him we see our sin paid for. We see the evil and the tragedy and the travesty and the wickedness and the rebellion of our hearts because the death penalty was laid on him for sins that he did not do. I deserve God's wrath. When we see Christ, we see how deep our sin. As the lamb dies, we see that we are unrighteous and he is righteous. He is the lamb of God. He is the light of the world. He is the truth. He is bread from heaven. He is life. He is the very glory of God. And he has dwelt with us. This presence 
brings the second, I've, I've kind of framed them as gifts, the gift of God's presence, and the second is the gift of knowing God through Jesus Christ. See, he didn't just come that he might be seen. If you're visited a monument or a location just to look at it and walk away pretty quickly. If you ever see something like the mystery spot, don't be fooled. It's not worth it. There are some monuments that, that people talk about, and they're really just nothing to see. And you move on. Jesus Christ was not presented as God's tabernacle where we see his glory that, that you might go like Mount Rushmore, look at it, contemplate it, take a few goofy family pictures, and walk away unchanged. Jesus Christ is the demonstration of God's glory. He is God with us so that we might be changed. Look again in this text. I want you to see how, how he pushes us to recognize something's going on here in the display of God's glory. Okay, so, so we have his dwelling, he's templed or tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father. What is this glory, though? It's full of what? Grace and truth. It's not just blinding light. It's not looking into the sun with no truth. It, it is looking, and there's truth there. It's grace and truth. And John bore witness about him and cried that this is the one who's, although in time coming after John, ranks before John. Verse 16, from his fullness... We've received, now it's not seeing, we've received what? Grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Okay, so now he's taking, and it's like, it's like once you get past the brightness and the brilliance and the display of the glory, and you say, what's really going on here? What is the glory we're seeing? He says it's actually grace and truth. Most commentators, and I think they're right here, indicate that this is probably a reference to Exodus 34. If you don't know what happens in Exodus 34, it's one of those kind of cool passages. You go back to chapter 33. Moses is on the mountain with God, and he's like, God, show me your glory. Remember, John has just said, we've seen God's glory. But on that mountain, Moses is like, show me your glory. God's like, well, I will show you my glory, and I will preach to you. Man, what did God preach? It doesn't sound good that like God's going to preach. Like, buckle up, here it comes. Well, God passes by him and shows him his glory, and it's like God's glory rather than coming at Moses. Moses is hidden in a crack of the rock, and God passes by, and God lets him see him as he's walking away, lest he just disintegrate Moses. But then God speaks. Listen to what God says. The Lord passed before him and preached. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. <laughs> the first words out of God's mouth to describe who he is to Moses. Moses says, let me see it. Let me see your glory. Let me know you. I want to understand you. Let me see who you are. And God says, buckle up, I'm going to preach. I have mercy and grace. That's who I am. He continues. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. 
but yet who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity on the fathers and on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The first lines of God's sermon he's declaring to Moses is mercy, grace, steadfast love, forgiving iniquity. Unless we think God never deals with sin, for the one who remains unrepentant and without confessing his sin, he says, I will return on them judgment. So God is not purely just forgiving with no concern for justice. But think about the themes God initially declares. It is themes that could be summarized in two words, grace and truth. And that's what John says when we see Jesus Christ We have a better thing than Moses had. We have a better message. He had words where God preached. We have the word whose life preaches grace and truth. He embodies grace and truth. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he is declaring for the world, I am grace and truth truth. And this is the point of this text then, that the God of gods who is eternally happy and had no need for you sent his son to be his tabernacle dwelling among us, that by seeing Jesus Christ, we would see grace and truth. This then means that God's kindness and mercy and generosity to us is centered on and from the person and work of Jesus Christ. So to any Muslim or Orthodox Jewish person who does not embrace Jesus Christ, they remain aliens and foreigners to God's grace. To anyone who has some type of like simple theology where they believe that Jesus existed, but they have not truly embraced Jesus with their arms of faith and held tight, they remain strangers and aliens to the grace of Christ. You can imagine what this was like for the Pharisees who felt righteous on their own, who felt that they were in fact the inheritors of Moses' message. They would have considered themselves disciples of Moses. And Jesus says, you're wicked, you're full of dead man's bones, you're hypocrites. They didn't need grace in their minds. To anyone who thinks that by their own efforts, whether it's church attendance or faithful prayers or saying a mass, that you could possibly, possibly earn grace, then you've defied the meaning of grace. Grace is what you give to a person who doesn't deserve it. Grace is not ever earned. In Jesus Christ, we see the one who earned it all for us, so that by trusting in him, there was nothing left for us to do but trust He's true. Maybe the most startling thing is he is truth. He doesn't just speak truth, but because he is true, everything that comes from him is true. Just as a pure well gives forth only pure water, Jesus Christ, as true, only speaks and acts in accord with what is real and true. To reject Jesus is to, in fact, live a life of personal spiritual deceit. Can I just say that in a very helpful way? This should allow us to engage culture. I have no doubt what is true. So as our world struggles with personal identity crises, 
men being born men, but now thinking they're women, trapped in a men's body. A world that thinks personal identity comes down to choice, that you can identify with whatever you want, which is going to be all sorts of chaos. As we have a culture that says we are something we are not, that defines us in ways that we know are untrue, how do you stay clear-minded? How do you engage people with love? Our world would want us to do something like this, and this is the falsehood of it. To be gracious to someone is to ignore truth. Right? Like, I don't want to get too far into the weeds here. But when I meet a man who says, call me Sue, and it's not because he's the object of a country song, And I, I feel the pressure to love him, her, him, her, by lying. So, so in my mind, if I could phrase it this way, I will give grace by lying. Can we recognize that this passage says that's not the way to do it? That grace and truth are a package deal for Jesus? That for me to give in to the lie and agree that in fact he is Sue is for me to rob him of Jesus. Because Jesus only comes as grace and truth. It's not grace without truth, nor is it graceless truth. I mean, some people, you know, like, they cover things that they're... They're just mean. And they're like, well, you know, I call an ace and ace and a spade a spade. No, you're a jerk. Like, stop it. Like, we don't have to be unkind to this person. They're in darkness. I don't criticize the person who's in darkness for being lost. I try to turn the lights on. I turn them to Jesus. If Jesus is grace and truth, light is a, as a metaphor for truth, but grace is helping them want it, helping them see the goodness of it. Because you know where that metaphorical man will be? He will be alone. He will never know the sweetness of fellowship with Jesus Christ. He will never know without repentance and forgiveness that God gives, he will never know sweet fellowship. He'll be alone looking for relationship and his whole life will be a series of miseries and pains. And I'm more worried that I don't look like a jerk. And so I give him grace with a lie, which is no grace at all. That's helpful for me to see. It's helpful for me to think through with Jesus. Now can I just turn, the, turn that around and say, that's you? You're not struggling with transvestitism, I hope. Transvestitism, I hope. But I think you're probably struggling with lies. You're probably struggling with a dishonest view of yourself. You're probably struggling with loneliness. You're probably struggling with worth. You're probably struggling with identity. So look to Jesus. He is God's grace and truth for you. Maybe I can 
just remind you of some of the work we've done in Philippians and, and point out what verse 18 says. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. If we were to back up a little bit, he says grace upon grace. Probably a better way to say that is grace displacing grace. Grace for grace, maybe. So that Moses gives us this view of God from the law, and that's a huge grace. Jesus Christ embodies the character of God. That's a better, richer, fuller grace. They're both graces, but the grace of the law was a shadowy view of who God was, where the picture of Christ is a crystal clear three-dimensional view of who God is, right? So as we view Christ, we see God. That's, that's the point of the text. So, so I, I want to string together this thought for you then. Jesus Christ is truth. He is grace. I would also add he's happy. Do you doubt that God is delighted and happy? I, I get filled with anxieties and worries and angers and frustrations and complaints. How about you? Right? Like, you want to be happy. Here's how you pursue happiness. Be like Jesus. Right? So, we look at Hollywood, we look at rich people, we look at famous people, and they look happy. Yeah, but it's not true. Jesus is happy, and that is true. So you want to be happy, be like Jesus. And then it's like, well, wait, how could you really be happy if you're like Jesus? What happened to Jesus at the end of his life? He was murdered. What happened throughout his whole life? He was pressed upon. He suffered hurt and injury and loneliness, I think, at times. Let me ask you, do you think the Son of God is eternally happy from this point forward? That's a little bit of the text of Hebrews 12, isn't it? For the joy set before him. So as we consider who Jesus is, I'm going to say it again. He is truth. He is grace. And your best hope of satisfaction is walking with him. It's walking with him in sweet fellowship. That will both make you like him it will give you the power to walk as he walked, and it will give you the joy that he alone has. Let me close with, with two verses that I think kind of bring this introduction of John together. Come with me to John 14, and then we'll just look in John 15. In John 14, look with me in verse 23 and 24. If anyone loves me, Jesus says, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, Jesus is bringing together, I think, two thoughts that we see in John 1. What happens for those who love Jesus Christ? Let me read it again. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. What? What will the Father do for you if you love Jesus? The Father will love you and he will make his home with you. Like, you want to have a life that's rich and satisfied Love Jesus. 
Now, what does it look like to love Jesus? If you love Jesus, you will keep his word. Man, for all the pretenders out there that say they love Jesus, that's a litmus test. Do you really? Yeah, I really love Jesus. Well, do you do what he says? Oh, that feels legalistic. I don't think I'd do that. Well, then you don't love him. Right? Love generates obedience. Listen, if you're obeying because you have to, you don't love Jesus. If you, if you obey because you love him, and this is what's happening at Christmas. I, I would imagine, although I have not counted or looked, that I have a couple gifts under the Christmas tree from my children who don't have very much money at all. I don't think that they're like, oh, this is horrible. We've got to get Dad a gift. Like, how much do I have to spend, Mom? My guess is that my daughters love the opportunity to go find something Dad would like. Probably their most frustrating thing was figuring out what Dad would like. But they really wanted to find what I would like because they love me. That's what generates obedience. But when that happens, God dwells with us. God loves us. You are never alone if you love Jesus, ever. You are never without hope. You are never helpless. You are never without the aid and the companionship of God Almighty, ever. You are his child. You are in his home. He cares for, he protects, and he walks with you. He dwells. I mean, the, the word, I remember the King James, because that's what I grew up on. He will make his abode with you. Dwells with you. Come to chapter 15. Look in verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So, so again, bringing this thought that God dwells with us into this text. If God dwells with us, what can you do? Or maybe I could say it better. If you don't dwell with God, what can you not do? You can't do anything. Like, you're powerless. You're my blender unplugged from the wall. Doesn't matter how many times I hit the button to blend, nothing happens. Some of you wonder why you have no power to please God. Because you don't actually have his saving grace. And heaven is forever away. And no matter what you try to do, you'll never get there. Because you don't actually love the Savior who is grace and truth. I want to end with this encouraging thought. If you love Jesus, if you trust in him, God dwells with you. He empowers you to look like Jesus. And your life is filled with grace and truth. For those of you, I'm not going to read it. I was going to read a portion of um, Jesus Calling by um, Sarah Young. It's a piece of garbage. Um, And that's saying kindly. But you should think about that book. But she starts with this, this experience that's echoic of probably your experience, maybe, is that you and I can feel very distant from God. You might feel like your fellowship with God is cold and stale. Like the Bible is a fact book or a history book, and you don't like facts or history. And doing the spiritual disciplines is like your treadmill. It kind of works for a clothes hanger, but you don't do any real work on that treadmill. And that's your Bible, and that's your spiritual walk, and you just feel like there's no fellowship with you and God. So, again, Sarah Young has written a piece of trash because she is trying to tell you that you do not walk with God through this, but through the imagination 
that God has put in your head, which is not how you walk with Jesus. That's how you walk away from Jesus. So I want you to think about this. The Word, Jesus Christ, gives us His Word so that we would know Him, grace and truth. Walk with Him in His truth and by His grace so that you might commune and dwell with God Almighty. If you feel like God is distant, I want to remind you that He is speaking to you in His Word every time you open and read it. For those of you who, like me, can when I read the Bible, can maybe lose track of where I am or, or maybe uh, not always get enriched from it, God has given you instruments of grace in his church. Our church has an embarrassment of riches of men who are capable of teaching, small group leaders who are fantastically gifted at instructing. And if those don't work, get an app that reads the Bible to you. Listen to sermons from good preachers, and God will commune with you. Like, yeah, but I just want to interact with God. Well, pray back. This is not complex. But it's a discipline. It's a discipline. You want to walk in grace and truth. This year, walk with Jesus. Read his word as his communication to you. Pray so that you might commune back to him. This is how God walks with his people, dwells with him. And as you do that, he strengthens you like a branch does a vine, growing out, getting its nutrients from its roots, so that you can serve him, love him, have peace and joy in the middle of a world that's just nasty. Walk with Christ this year. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that we receive grace and truth through Jesus Christ. I ask that you would give our church a, a deep hunger to spend time with Jesus Christ, to know him, to know his truth, to walk with him. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you have made yourself known through Jesus Christ. When we see his humility, his love, his forgiveness, his compassion, his patience, his endurance, his prayerfulness, when we see his long-suffering with the rockhead disciples, when we see him interact with others who are believing lies and he confronts them with the truth, we see your character on display. We see how you hate lies, how you have mercy on the downtrodden, the enslaved, and the deceived. We see how much you hate pride. Father, teach us to hate our pride. Teach us to run away from the slave chains of sin. Lord, help us to be people who pursue the truth even when it doesn't make us feel good. Lord, give us a grace and a compassion for those who are hurting. For those who are lonely and without friends or relatives and suffering in isolation, Lord, help our church to reach out and fellowship with them and encourage them. But Lord, most of all, help us to walk with Jesus this Christmas. Help us to walk with the one who is God, the one who is God dwelling with us, the one who shows us the very glory and character of our Father in heaven, the one who brings to us grace and truth because he is grace and truth. Lord, please work in us. And at the least, remind us of how grateful we should be for your son's precious work on the cross, his resurrection afterwards. Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ. 
It is for his namesake and in his name and for his glory we ask these things. Amen.